0: Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. Mark 8, we're uh, going to be... Today is the final message of the calendar year in Mark's gospel. We'll pick up in January uh, with the last part of chapter 8, uh, and I think you'll see the, the emphasis on that portion uh, going into 2024 for our church. Uh, but uh, in Mark 8, uh, today where we find ourselves, we are, we're looking at uh, what I want to I, I, I encourage you to, to see. Now, here's what I want to invite you to do today. I know, uh, I know that you've had a, a long week, a lot of eating, and, and in about five minutes, you're all going to tank on me, all right? So in five minutes, I'm going to have you stand up. We're going to do 25 jumping jacks, and then you'll sit back down, all right? I want to invite you to fight hard to, to, to stay here, and I'm going to tell you why really quickly. I think today's message, if I can say this, and, and I, uh, I mean this from, from just a, a, a place of, of, of passion for God's word, I think today's message is the pinnacle message of Mark's gospel. It's the most important message, uh, what we find in this passage. In fact, uh, to tell the Christian in here, you staying engaged, you don't know who around you doesn't know Christ. This message could be, could be the, the difference of their eternal, their eternal reality. So, so uh, stay in your seat, please. Plug in with me for the next little bit. And and we're gonna, I think, be helped and edified by this text. Our minds, our minds, you and I, our minds are filled with questions, things that we wonder about. God, God has made us this way. God has made us to be truth seekers. In fact, I spent some time this week searching for the most asked questions on Google for this year. Now, you get different answers d- depending on different uh, places. But, but here's a, an idea of some of the answers that you might find. If you look for what was the most searched question of the year? How many ounces in a cup? That must have been Thanksgiving morning. Um, how to download WhatsApp? This is my favorite one. Where's my refund? Questions like, why is the sky blue? When is the mega millions drawing? Where is the closest pharmacy? And then finally, my favorite, who let the dogs out? All right. We are a question asking people. God has made us to be this. But I started looking. And you know what I couldn't find? And I would be glad to stand corrected if you want to look yourself, but I spent too long diving down too many blogs and Reddit threads and you name it, trying to find someone who claims that this, this question is the most important question that you'll have to answer in your life. I couldn't find anybody to make that claim. I couldn't find anybody say, anybody that said, the most important question that you'll ever answer or ask is this. Couldn't find it maybe because we're so subjective in what we think is important but but nobody has claimed to have the most important question for man to answer other than what I think the Lord Jesus asked in the text today i think the universal for every person to answer question the most important one that you could ever ask. I'm going to make the claim today since nobody else will make it. I believe that this is the most important question that anybody will ever answer. And I promise you, everybody will answer. And it's asked by Jesus. I want you to look with me at Mark 8. Try to, for the next minute, lay your eyes on every word that I read in verse 27 through all the way down through verse 33. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elias and others, one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. I trust in the text you found what I think, what I think every Christian would agree is the most important question anybody will ever answer. From Mark 1 through the middle of chapter 8, it's been Mark's goal to show us Jesus. To show us Jesus, the King who is bringing the gospel. We saw that in Mark 1 the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now we're at a transition with Mark. What is in front of us today is a watershed moment in the narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus is just finished. I know Dr. Sist preached last week, so maybe you forgot. Jesus just finished re- rebuking the, the, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, for their spiritual blindness. They wanted a sign from heaven about who Jesus is. But Mark eight twelve, we saw that Jesus rebuked them and said there shall, be no, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. Following the rebuke of the Pharisees, the disciples and Jesus get on the boat. They sail northeast to this, on the Sea of Galilee, heading to Bethsaida, and Jesus has to rebuke the 12. Jesus addressed the matter of spiritual blindness with them. And when they got to Bethsaida, Jesus healed that blind man. You remember the whole story about the Pharisees' blindness, the blindness of the the 12, and now Jesus is healing this blind man there in Bethsaida. But things in Galilee, in the region of Galilee, are getting a little tense for Jesus. The Jewish leaders are getting more and more angry. And our passage today is a hinge passage. The door of Mark's gospel swings on this passage. Jesus is going to begin preparing his disciples for what is coming. He's preparing them for the exact reason that we celebrate Christmas, the exact reason of the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus is now going to begin preparing them, and we'll see that in January when we get back into chapter 8. I've divided the text today that we just read. I've divided it into two Sections for us. I, I, I've, I've, I've tried to keep it very simple. I want you to, to 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 pay more attention to the content than my points. And so I want you to see the first part of this is I believe the crucial conversation. It's a crucial conversation. Verse twenty-seven. Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. Now. Caesarea Philippi was a town about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was situated on the southern slopes of Mount Hermon. Now, we're going to put a couple of things on the screen for us today. But there you can see the red dot. I don't know if you can see the words, but you can see this is Caesarea Philippi. Here's Galilee. There's Bethsaida. Jesus had been in Magdala. He, he had gone over on the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida. And now he and the 12 have gone 25 miles north to Caesarea Philippi. All right? Things are too tense down here. The Jewish leaders are, are, are angry. They're looking to kill him. But this is not the time for Jesus to die. So he goes up to Caesarea Philippi on this way. There's a little bit of a, a jog there, a little road. Now, I'm going to show you some pictures of Caesarea Philippi in a minute that I think you'll find helpful. But I want you to, I want you to see, by the way, Uh, we'll keep the map up here for a minute, even if the lights are on, uh, it's fine, or the lights are off. Um, Caesarea Philippi is about a day's walk. Now, maybe that's not a day's walk for you at 25 miles, but it is for Jesus and the 12 in this day, all right? Now, let me explain something. We can put the lights back on. Let me explain something about Caesarea that I think is going to be helpful for you. There's two Caesareas in the Bible. The more famous Caesarea is Caesarea, what we call Caesarea Maritima, It's Caesarea by the sea. You find the Apostle Paul imprisoned in Caesarea in the book of Acts. That's Caesarea that's on the coast of the Mediterranean. That's why we call it by the sea. So there's a Caesarea that's more famous. And then there's this Caesarea, which is called Caesarea Philippi. This Caesarea Philippi was named after Caesar Augustus. So Caesarea named after Caesar. And it was done so in A.D. 14 by Herod the Great's son, Philip. Philip the Tetrarch. And so you get the idea of Caesarea for Caesar, Philippi for Philip. Before it was called Caesarea Philippi, this city was called Baal Hermon because it's at the foot of Mount Hermon. Baal Gad, you can understand the idea of Baal in a moment. But the primary name for Caesarea Philippi was was called Panias, P-A-N-I-A-S. It was called Panias because the name came because the city was famous for its sanctuary of Pan, or to Pan. Pan was a half-man, half-goat god. There at Panias, Caesarea Philippi, there at Panias, Pan was worshipped in a grotto next to a cave at the foot of Mount Hermon. Now the area, I just have to tell you, the area of Caesarea Philippi, I've been there, it's just there I was supposed to be leaving for Israel tomorrow, actually. It was a year ago that we, were in Caesarea Philippi, or that we were in Caesarea Philippi. The area there is gorgeous. It's very lush. It sits on a tributary that flows into the Jordan River. It was there at this location that there was a cave. That cave had a seemingly bottomless pit. This or this, or The bottomless cave, where, where in this bottomless pit... The, the minds of the pagans believed that it was created to be a gate to the underworld. It was full of water this 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 cave, this canyon, this pit, and they believed that in this underworld, in that water there at the gates of of, of pan was was where uh, the fertility gods lived and, and, at, and at this place of panias Caesarea Philippi, unspeakable vile. Acts were committed to these gods. It was a vile place. Jews would not have gone there. They would have avoided any contact with all that happened at Caesarea Philippi. All of it. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 16 when he spoke of the gates of hell. You might remember that phrase. That Jesus said, upon this rock, I will will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I want you to see the gates of hell. We're going to put up some pictures up here uh, a little bit earlier than I had planned. Just keep that one up there. Kill the lights if you would for a moment. This is that cave at Caesarea Philippi. All right. Down in there was the water. This was referred to. This this is where they would come. And in worship of Pan, they would do uh, literally unspeakable vile acts to the fertility gods. And it was in here. So when Jesus speaks of the gates of hell, this right here was known as the gates of hell. We'll show a couple other pictures here. Uh, you can see here, this is backed out from there. This is that's Mount Hermon there. Uh, and so you can see a little bit of some of these little carvings out there where they would put the gods of of Pan. They'd, they'd put them there. And you you would you would you, the, the the acts of worship would happen right down here at this hill. Do we have another one? I think we have a third. Here you go. Here you can see some of these carvings out in the mountain where they would would put false gods. And the things that happened here at the foot of this were just, again, they were vile. This is Caesarea Philippi. Can you give me that backed out picture again? This is Caesarea Philippi. All this back here, back where you and I are are standing and sitting is, is water and fountains and lush greenery. But here it's nothing but vile paganism. Now, it's here. You can put the lights back up. It's here at Caesarea Philippi. On the way, on the way to Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus, in verse 27, asked them a question. Whom do men say that I am? Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. Some say Elias. Others, one of the prophets. Mark, Matthew 16 is a parallel passage we read when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremias, or one of the prophets. So Jesus asked them a general question Whom do men say that I am? Now, in Judaism, in Judaism, usually the disciples ask the questions. But Jesus isn't your average rabbi. And so Jesus is the one asking. But, but on top of that, Jesus, you would typically ask someone what they do, but it's not normal to ask someone who they are. Who am I? Jesus knows that his disciples have been sitting on this question for a while now. In fact, you and I have been joining them with that question. If you've been tracking with me for the last several months, you've been, you've been, you've been trying to answer that question with me, when in Mark chapter four, the disciples ask the question, what manner of man is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Who is this? Who is this? Jesus is now saying, who do people say that I am? Now, Jesus is not asking, well, stay with me, we're about ready to do some jumping jacks if, you, if I start losing you, all right? Whom do people say that I am? He's not asking what the religious leaders think. He's not asking uh, what, what the elite people of Israel think. He's aver- asking what is the common person who's in the crowds, who's hearing Jesus teach, watching his miracles. Who do those people think Jesus is? In fact, Luke 9 gives us a glimpse into that. When Luke 9 tells us that, of this story, and Jesus' question is, whom say the people that I am? Who are the people saying that I am? Some about the average person. And in response to 12, their, their response is, is man, um, some think that you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Elias or, or, or Elijah. Some think you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Some, some think you're one of the prophets that's risen from the dead. I mean, stop for a moment and think with me. What an incredible way. What an incredible way for someone to identify you. You, you'd appreciate that if somebody said, you know, you remind me of John the Baptist. It might be a little bit weird too, but knowing what he wore, something, man, you remind me of, of Elijah. You remind me of Jeremiah. This kind of description was like the, the, the Mount Rushmore of Judaism. Yet truthfully, that response was insufficient. They thought Jesus was awesome. They thought Jesus was great. Jesus wasn't interested in you thinking he was awesome. Jesus doesn't care if you think he's great. So Jesus follows up with another question. And he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? We see the similar question in Luke 9 and Matthew 16. Luke 9 says, but whom say ye that I am? Luke 16 says, but whom say ye that I am? The point of the emphasis of the question is the ye, the you. Who who do you say Jesus is? Jesus isn't worried about what the crowds think of him. His aspirations aren't political. He wants to make sure of his, his followers know who he is. And the fact that Jesus isn't worried about the crowd's opinion or description of who he is, tells us that Jesus doesn't care about that. He wants to make sure his followers grasp who he is. Listen very carefully, my friends. The answer to Jesus' questions has implications, massive implications on every area of your life. Let me say that again. How you answer this question has massive implications for your life. Peter answers, verse 29, and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. Thou art the Christ. In Mark's gospel, only God Himself. In Mark chapter 1. And the demons in Mark one twenty four, Only God himself and the demons have confessed that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. Peter says, thou art the Christ. Thou art Christos. What is he saying? Thou art the Christ. Thou Christos, translated in Hebrew, Messiah. The meaning to anoint. You are Jesus. You are the anointed one of God. But here's what you got to understand. So try to stay with me for just a moment as I explain this. In Jesus' day, the prevailing, the prevailing idea, the prevailing belief was that the Messiah, the Christ, would be an eschatological king, meaning he would be a king who would be relating to death the final judgment, the kingdom a future idea that was coming, that God would establish and protect an everlasting kingdom over all the earth. And so when Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, Peter is saying, on behalf of the 12, you are the king that God has sent to establish and rule his kingdom. That's everything. That's what Peter is saying. Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the king who's come to rule God's kingdom. Matthew 16 gives us Jesus' response. Simon Peter, after Simon answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Peter speaks with clarity. And he speaks with conviction. When he says, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Savior of the world. His doubts are gone. The other disciples' doubts are gone. They know who Jesus was. They, they, they affirmed his identity. They knew that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And Verse 30 goes on and says, and he charged them that they should tell no man of him. That was what Jesus did. He said to them, don't tell anybody who I am. He gave them a stern warning. Why, why did Jesus do that? By the way, if you've been, if you've been paying attention in Mark, Jesus is always warning people not to tell others who He is. The point of this here is because the time for preaching the gospel will come after the crucifixion and the resurrection. This is not the time. More is to be done. There will be a time for those guys to go and preach. Well, let me ask you an application question today. It's actually not really an application question. It's something for you to draw away from. It's the, it's the question of the service today, really. And that is this. How would you answer the question of Jesus' identity? How would you answer the question of Jesus' identity? Maybe for some of you, I just lobbed you an easy pitch to hit out of a the theological ballpark. But I want you to think about how you answer that. Listen very carefully. In our day, in our day, defining Jesus as Christians would often simply elicit some kind of Jesus is my Savior response. There's a place for that. That's absolutely true. Jesus is my Savior and He's your Savior if you know Him as your Savior. The question that Peter answered, though, the the, the answer that Peter gave so clear was, Jesus, thou art the Christ. The answer wasn't, Jesus, you're my Savior. The answer was, Jesus, you're the King. You're the one who rules, Jesus. You are the one who has full authority over my life. And I think sometimes we answer the savior response with the savior response, but we don't want Jesus as our king because that king demands something out of us. We answer that we're, we, Jesus is our savior, but we, 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 we pull back from speaking of Jesus as our Lord because we must be obedient to our master. Jesus doesn't ask Peter, Am I your Savior? He says, Peter, am I the Christ? Am I the King? The Messiah? I asked you this morning, When will you define Jesus as your King? Be careful when you do, though. As we'll see in another month, when Jesus is your King, He calls you to be a disciple. A lot of people have prayed prayers and trusted Christ and believe they're not going to hell when they die, but they're going to heaven. But they live so contrary to a disciple. So contrary to a disciple. And that's the point of this question. Here's the interesting part, though. Jesus is nothing like the king they expected. He's nothing like the king they expected. We'll see that in just a moment. Look at the next part. I want you to see some reciprocating rebukes. I wondered if your ears perked up when I read the words of of, of, uh, verse 31 and 32. There's some rebukes in this passage, right? Verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus' important statement here is the Son of Man must suffer. That's what he said. The Son of Man must suffer. When we hear Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man, we assume he's saying he's human, but this title means more than that. Because in the prophecies of Daniel, we're told about the Son of Man in verse 13 of Daniel 7 I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and brought him near before him, and, they, and there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer, he is connecting himself to Daniel 7. Which the prophecy, as you saw there, you can see in Daniel 7, is of a divine messianic figure who comes with the angels to put everything right. But here's the important part of this. Jesus says something that doesn't make sense. He says the Son of Man must suffer. He must suffer. And never before, never before, this moment had anyone in Israel connected the suffering that Jesus speaks of with the Messiah never before of course there are many prophecies in the old testament about a mysterious servant of the Lord who suffers Isaiah 43 Isaiah 44 Isaiah 53 which most of you would know but nobody before Jesus had ever associated those texts with the hope of the Messiah the belief that the Messiah would suffer made no sense because the Messiah was supposed to defeat evil and injustice and make everything in the world. And how? How could He defeat evil by suffering and dying? It seemed ridiculous. It seemed impossible. But if you're tracking with me and you've got a pen available, I would recommend you highlight, circle, draw arrows around the word must. The Son of Man Must. Jesus has indicated that he's planning to die and that he's doing it voluntarily and that he would rise again. Verse 32, and he spake that saying openly. This news, we saw the clarity of Peter. Well, now the clarity from Jesus caught the disciples by surprise. They attested to his divinity, don't miss this, to his Messiahship, but they had no framework for the messiah suffering and dying. So much so, in verse 32, Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Did you catch that earlier? you ever have anybody in your life that you go, I could never correct them? If you, if you told me today to correct or rebuke my parents, I'd tell you, you're crazy, I'd like to live. I would have no framework for rebuking my parents. Jesus is rebuked by Peter. Somebody in that 12 should have said, hey, Pete, hold up, man. (laughs) Look at verse 33. But when he turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Listen. Peter, already in this text, had been a spokesman for God in confessing Jesus as the Messiah. And now he's gone to being a spokesman for Satan. say, why do I say that? Well, when Satan tempted Jesus in verse 10 of Matthew 4, Jesus saith unto him, to Satan, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, "Thou Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. In this point, Peter wanted Jesus. Listen, Peter wanted Jesus as a king without Jesus on a cross. I don't want you to miss these next couple minutes here, okay? Peter wanted Jesus as a king without Jesus on the cross. But Jesus made clear to Peter when he told him, Get behind me, Satan. That there's no glory without suffering, that there's no salvation without death and resurrection. For Peter, the indication that the Son of Man will die was unthinkable, but for Jesus, it's inevitable. Just like Satan in the wilderness, Peter offers Jesus, Peter offers Jesus the crown without the cross. In in essence, here's the point of this. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus thinks, excuse me, Peter thinks in saying this, that he has a better plan than God does. In rebuking Jesus, Peter is saying, "I know better than God. What are you doing, Jesus? You're not going to die on a cross." And the text says something interesting. I, I, I actually, I actually love the um, the context of this week. Did you savor anything on Thursday? Did you eat something and go, oh, that's good. Just a couple of us, I guess. I hope you did. The point here is actually not far off. It's that Peter finds enjoyment. He enjoys, he savors the things of men, but not the things of God. And the problem with this is significant. Because Jesus savored the things of God, but not the things of men. Peter savored the things of men, but not the things of God. I want you to get something here that you're going to need for another month from now. I'll remind you about this, okay? Don't miss this saying of application. A wrong view of Jesus' kingship leads to a wrong view of our discipleship. Remember what I said to you earlier? The difference is just don't I'm not against seeing Jesus as a savior, obviously. But when that's where your Christian life stops. Then you you have no framework for discipleship. To be a disciple of Jesus means to see Jesus as king. And when you only see Jesus as savior, you're unwilling to suffer for Christ because he suffered totally for you. But when you see Jesus as your king, you're willing to do anything even to suffer for him. That's true discipleship. So the point of this is Peter has a wrong view of kingship. And until that gets corrected, Peter will have a wrong view of discipleship. In fact, Peter's going to wrestle with this all the way to the cross. He's going to wrestle with this all the way to the resurrection. When Jesus has grace and says, Go tell the disciples and Peter. Peter's going to need that moment because his discipleship is going to get reoriented by the resurrected Christ. For you and I on this side of the resurrection, we need to know that yes, Jesus is our Savior, but Jesus is our King and we are His disciples. And the danger for Peter is a danger for us. Don't miss this quote by James Edward. He says, when disciples play God rather than follow Jesus, they inevitably become satanic. When the disciples of Jesus play God rather than follow Jesus, they inevitably become satanic. Can I just ask you a question? Are you are you so busy following Jesus that you have no time to question God? His plan, His purpose. But all this leads us to a conclusion today. All right? You ready to land the plane? It's kind of like the pie after lunch on Thursday. Here we go. I want to lead you to a necessary conclusion that I think is important for us to see. From from Mark 1 through today in Mark 8, we have been on a journey. From Mark 1, we've been asking this question. Who is this man? Right? Who is this man? We've been on a journey. Mark so phenomenally wrote his his, his gospel for us to take us to this point in Mark 8, where we look back and we say, we've been waiting to answer the question today. So the question is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That was the question for eight chapters we've been trying to answer. We come to today, and the question is put out for you. You've seen it all. You've seen Jesus cast out demons. You've seen Jesus heal blind men, deaf men. You've seen Jesus heal the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. You've seen so much for eight chapters. The question for you is, who is Jesus? And how you answer that question is the most important answer of your life. All right, stay with me. Mark 8.31 all the way to Mark 16 is going to answer the question about who is the suffering servant? What do we need to know about him? The question of Mark 4 in the Sea of Galilee, who is this man? has been answered with, Thou art the Christ. But Jesus just told these 12 that the Son of Man must suffer, die, and rise again. So we would be wise. And by the way, when you study the gospel accounts, one of the key questions you ask every gospel account is the question of why. Why? Why must, must the Son of Man, suffer and die? Let's answer that with three answers today. Right? Number one, there's a personal must. There's a personal must. I don't want you to miss this. The personal must for why Jesus had to suffer and die. The personal must is because of sin. Stay with me here. We're going to navigate through these three answers. And it's insufficient in totality, but I want you to see it in part at least. Because of sin, you and I are incapable. We're incapable of receiving and giving perfect, full, and total love. Maybe you push back on that, but that is true because of your sin. We're incapable. We, 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 we're, we, we're not able to receive and give it. But on the other end of that, you and I know what fake love is. You know, you probably met somebody that told you they loved you, and you're like, you don't even know me, man. Right, we know what fake love is. We don't want it. And on the other side, We're fearful of giving full love because that requires vulnerability and openness and all the walls to come down. And you and I are typically not comfortable with that very often. There might be a few people in your life that you know, they know everything about me and they love me anyway. But I guarantee you there's there's probably things about your life that someone doesn't know that you want them not to know. Why is that? Because we're afraid that if they know it, they'll stop loving us. Tim Keller writes so profoundly about this. That the opposite of the gospel, the, the opposite of the gospel is to be known and not loved. But the gospel, the personal must, is because you and I need a Savior who knows us perfectly and loves us perfectly. That's what we have. So why must Jesus die? We need to know a kind of love that says, I know who you are. I know what you are I know what you've done I know what you will do I know what you will say I know what you will think I know the dirt on you and I will die for you that's what we need there's a personal must for all of the twelve and all of us see in that moment Jesus is dying for Peter who's rebuking him see the The paradox in this. So the personal must is you need perfect love. You need it and I need it. And there's only one way in this broken world for us to see it. Jesus says in 1 John John 3, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Jesus is telling those 12, the Son of Man must, because guys and ladies, you need to know the deep, deep love of Jesus. Can I just say to you, what will fortify you against every hill and valley of life is to know that Jesus will never stop loving you with perfect love. Do you ever, do you ever look at your, yourself like I do and say, I am so unworthy? I mean this I'm not trying to be sweet romantic I think that about my wife but here's the reality as much as my wife and I love each other it is still yet not a perfect love the only place you can find perfect love is in the savior you need Jesus to die you know why because you need to see true love second must The second must, and I didn't know any other way to to say it, so for some in here, they'll appreciate it. There's a legal must. Legal. Don't get get nervous about lawyer talk here, all right? So stay with me. There's a legal must. Hear this this for just a moment. We're about done. We don't just need Jesus' sacrifice personally. We also need it legally. And Here's what I mean by that. When someone really wrongs you, a debt is established that must be paid by someone. The debt doesn't just disappear. Either you pay it or they pay it. Only if the price of forgiveness is paid and the debt is absorbed, will there be an opportunity to right the wrong. And so if you and I know that forgiveness always entails suffering for the forgiver, and that the only hope of rectifying and righting wrongs comes by paying the cost of suffering, then it should not surprise us when God says, the only way I can forgive sins of the human race is to suffer. Either you, listen, either you pay the price, either you pay the penalty for sin, or God does. It doesn't just go away. It doesn't just go away. Sin, the cost, the price, doesn't go away. Someone must bear that price. And there's only two options. You or Jesus. So when Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer, He's exactly right. Someone must pay for these sins. Number three, quickly. There's what I call a global must. It could be universal. It could be, it could be worldwide. It could be whatever. But there's a global must. Here's what I want you to get from this. When Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer, I want you to, I want you to notice in, in this text, he says, notice, notice how he describes this. And he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected, notice it, of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes. What Jesus is showing the 12, what you and I need to get, is Jesus is killed by the authorities who throughout his world in that day Functioned out of power and selfishness and their own glory, even to oppress and to kill. And here's the point. Jesus is a different kind of king. You know what, you know what this must tells us? Hear me very carefully. That in this fallen world, in the fallen world, people in power function out of greed, selfishness, pride oppression, and Jesus says, this is what you get, but I am totally different than these rulers, because they're not going to die for you. I'll die for you. Now, let me read for you a lengthy quote, ties it all together. Edward says it like this. I want you to think about how he says this. The prediction of Jesus' passion conceals a great irony for the suffering and death of the Son of Man will not come as we would expect at the hands of godless and wicked people. It will not come that way. The suffering of the Son of Man comes rather at the hands of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes. It is not humanity at its worst that will crucify the Son of God, but humanity at its absolute best. The death of Jesus will not be the result of a momentary lapse or aberration of human nature, but rather the result of careful deliberations from respected religious leaders who will justify their actions by the highest standards of law and morality, even believing them to render service to God, John sixteen two. Jesus will not be lynched by an enraged mob or beaten to death in a criminal act he will be arrested with official warrants and tried and executed by the world's envy of jurisprudence, the Jewish Sanhedrin and the Principia Urus Romanorum. Here's the point of all this. I don't want you to miss this. You and I are not saved by giving Jesus our best. Because our best crucified Christ. In every other system of belief, In every other world system, your objective is ultimately to give God, however He is defined in that system, to give God your best. The Christian gospel says, your best is what put Christ on the cross. You see, God didn't want your best on the cross. God gave His best. Because that's what you need. And that's what I need. My best is filthy rags. My best is is empty works, religious activity. My best can can be summarized as similar to the the scribes and the elders. They They weren't trying to be evil men. They thought they were doing the service of God. It is the best of men that crucified Jesus. And that's the difference of the gospel. The son of man, heaven's best, came to earth. Born of a virgin. This is the Christian gospel. You ready? Born of a virgin. The son of God, the son of man, lives sinlessly. But he must die for the sins of the world because someone had to pay for your sins. And no sinner could pay for your sins. It had to be the sinless son of God. Jesus died on the cross. He must. He was buried. But he must rise again. And he did. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. You're here today, and you don't know Christ as your Savior. Christ must suffer for you. Please don't leave here without knowing him as your Savior. For the Christian in here today, I want you to understand what is available to you in your Savior, in your King. I want you to consider the must of the gospel. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.